Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Dan Walsh. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good, Josh. It's good to see you again. When last we spoke, we were had a couple things and uh, that we could pick up on both. Plus, we've been talking about leadership and our past. And these, these are all great topics. I'm going to propose, I'm going to say what the two things were for listeners who didn't just listen to our past conversation. So one was that I'd asked what the environment meant to you and then invited you to act on that. The other was that we were talking about coaching and, you know, one of the things I see missing from sustainability is teamwork, coaching, people really helping others as opposed to sharing facts and things like that. And I think what you bring would be supremely valuable in the area of sustainability. I propose of, the, of these three things that we start with, the, what the environment meant to you and the commitment that you did. Are you game to talk about that? Yeah, uh, 100%. I would say that, especially like even from the last time you and I talked, um, the environment is everything. Do you remember what, when I asked you what it meant to you, what you talked about? Uh, I actually don't because it's like I probably because of like between the course that I'm in and what I'm applying every day and with raising my kids, like it's it's literally evolving as fast as like chat GTP. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's a consciousness forming in me that is with every new input that I get is changing the way that I want to approach it and the urgency and the importance of how I want to do that. So I do at this point, it's like, I know what's important to me, but it's like, it doesn't really matter how it started anymore. It's a matter about what am I doing now? Because the future is catastrophically in some ways, like happening. So it happening so fast that it doesn't, the motivation, it doesn't matter to me. It's just a matter of like, I'm motivated. When you say the future, is that the future of your family, future of, of the environment, future of? Of it all. You know, it's like we're on an exponential curve. So it's, if you, know, one of the things about sports and athletics is like you learn exponential curves really fast. Like the first time you try and go for a personal best, it seems easy. Like, holy shit, you know, I'm 30 seconds faster. And then the next time you do it, it's like, oh, whoa, I'm 15 seconds faster. And it's like at a certain point in athletics, especially if you're racing, trying to go from point A to point B and you're reaching the terminal of a world record, right? So the faster, fastest anyone has ever gone in anything ever before, like you're, you're approaching a psychedelic paradigm shift of like, I do not believe in the normal constructs of reality anymore. I'm moving towards something new. And uh, it takes 10 times as much work to get, you know, half, half the result, <laughs> You know, when you first start off at something, you just have to try and repeat it a little bit more efficiently and you get double the efficiency for, you know, a quarter of the work. But when you get to the end of an exponential curve, it takes four times as much work to get a quarter of the result. It feels like you're describing, I'm trying to change, I'm trying to influence 33, 330 million Americans yep. and 8 billion people. No one's done that before. And what you're talking about this different reality and everyone's like, oh, it can't be done. Why bother? And, but I, you know, something that I also feel, I, I think a lot of people feel like we have to do what we can, but they aren't keeping track of their values. I, I mean, in sustainability, there's a lot of people who are like, this is what we got to do, but they're not, they're not coming from first principles. They're, they've, they're, there's this huge tendency to pursue 
shiny objects. What I ca- what I call stepping on the gas, thinking it's the brake. One and congratulations. Uh, carbon offsets don't work. Plastic recycling doesn't work. Solar is solar and wind are not clean, green, or renewable. But if you don't keep track of what this is really about, it's very easy to think, oh well, they fix carbon though, and but they don't fix the root problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure root problem. They don't fix the system. They don't. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's like accelerated. Yeah, it's like you know, smoking causes cancer. Okay, well, we haven't gotten rid of cigarettes. <laughs> so I'm going to get back to where you, I'm going to remind you what because yeah. I just listened to our last episode. Nice, it's good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, first, you talked about um, woods near you about how you, you're replanting and, re, and, uh, and doing a lot of reforesting. You talked about the history of deforestation around you. But then that was kind of abstract. Then you started talking about more about your time on the water and what outdoors means to you. And to, I think, it, I think your brother, if I remember right, that being outdoors had a natural feeling to you, like it felt right. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think a lot of it too is like, the important the importance of making a positive impact on it is like when you were so much of when I was rowing on these different bodies of water and it was like whatever you do try not to flip not because you would drown but because the water's unclean Oof, yeah right so like Norwalk River where I grew up in Norwalk old industrialized river 95 goes above it you know, there's, there was a landfill that has been capped and turned into a park, but it's like, oh, the water's like being fearful <laughs> of swimming in a river that leads out into Long Island Sound because you're afraid the water's dirty, right? Now, that's in, in contrast to the clean part too, which is what I was going for. It's like um, your description of being outdoors. There's also sound pollution, by the way. I, this happened last time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, sound pollution is actually serious pollution, as is light pollution. In, I mean, here in New York, people can't see the stars. We have better, really good stars where I live in Connecticut compared to where I was in Norwalk, <laughs> which, you know, Norwalk's only, I think, 50 miles as the crow flies to Manhattan. You know, it's like we could see the smoke from Diamond Levelin for the beaches and the, and the towers, you know, the, the spotlight from the towers. So, like, we're close to New York. And then I lived in Boston. So... My wife and I are thinking about taking the kids up to Acadia uh, in, in Maine to see the Milky Way this summer, right? Because it's like, and it's crazy that we have to go up to Maine to be able to really see the Milky Way. And so going back to what the, it's very tempting to, to talk about, oh, this horrible stuff. And I can engage in that. But if we just start going down there, we're going to get stuck. Yeah, let's not, go, let's not go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I invited you to act on what the outdoors meant to you. And you came up with something. Do you remember? Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. So you probably haven't done that. So I didn't do it effectively. Um, you talked about how you've been meaning, you tried and been meaning to meditate outdoors, but it wasn't working. Right. You felt like there was something there to be gotten. This is my read of it. There's something there to be gotten, but you weren't getting it. So I, so I, so I have acted on that. So I've acted on not to, so I do remember saying that I needed to figure out a way to get better connection to being outdoors because I'm outdoors all the time. So, Mm -hmm. but it's like trying to find the purpose of what it means to me. And, um, I try and approach life, everything through the idea of high performance for me. 
you know, so, and there's two ways that I feel you can achieve high performance is you can either take on more workload than the person next to you. And you have to be gifted enough to be able to handle that extra workload without it breaking you. And even the best athletes, CEOs, thinkers, like that will yield to being broken at some point, right? That approach will break you at some point. Um, hopefully enough that you learn the lesson and you can rebuild stronger. The other way is to become efficient. And so you, even if you get to, if you like, if you reach a plateau in athletics and you start trying to do more work, most often you'll have a regression at that point. Whereas if you then look at where am I being inefficient, right? Am I sleeping enough? Am I eating well? Am I in a healthy relationship? Um, you all of a sudden will start to pass that plateau, not because you put on more work, but because you came more efficient. You know, you got rid of distractions or basically leeches. So what I realized after our last talk is that I have some leeches. There's people, there's things taking up space that I feel like I got to nurture and care for. And one of the things we discussed was like the PlayStation, right? Like mm -hmm. I know that playing video games is not necessarily the best use of my time. Cause it's, I do it after I, the kids would go to bed and then I would get sucked into a story and then it would be late. And then I, you know, would, wouldn't get enough sleep. And so I am a bit extreme. <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's gotta be a sign that something's not helping you if you hide it from the kids. And no, I didn't hide. I played it with the kids too, but it's okay. just that it wasn't more important than the kids. Right. So like if we were going to watch screens together, we watched it together. So, right, like, so if I was, instead of playing PlayStation when my kids were awake, I did it after I played with the kids. So I wouldn't take, so I never, I don't give anything, any time to my kids if they deserve that time. Right. So like, I believe in you have to have time for yourself, but between managing the property, having a full-time job, um, my hobbies have to happen outside of the range of my children's time. Which I'm, ha which I'm happy for. But video games are created to keep you in that ex ecosystem, right? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a hobby. It sounds like an addiction. Yes, right? So, but it's also an, an entertainment, right? So it's a, it's mm -hmm. a it is a distraction that makes me... And what I realized is that there were... I had to first discover the difference between the placebo of the video game, which is like, oh, let me... Let me wind down and play some video games because it's fun for me versus the games that I was immersed in the story and the art of it. So like the game that I bought the PlayStation for first and foremost was God. Wait, hold, on, hold on. Before we get into video games, I want to get back to oh. um, you wanted to get back in touch with your purpose of outdoors. I just wanted to have more time. I like being outdoors and I didn't feel like I was spending enough time. So I was, you know, instead late at night sitting behind a screen. If I remember right, you the opportunity to meditate outdoors would have been one of those avenues. Correct. Right? Is prioritizing that versus prioritizing game night, game time at night. Yeah, I cut you off partly because the number of people I talk to who are doing things that are in there, there it's generally polluting activities that they will rationalize and justify for fucking ever of like how beneficial it is for, to their lives to do these things. And I can just go to crack row. I can go to Washington square park and find people who are taking meth and fentanyl and crack and, and hear it from them better. And 
you might not have been saying that, but it was close enough that I was like, oh, I can't deal with that. I, I don't want to hear more people rationalizing and justifying. Okay, it's entertainment. I'll grant you. I'm, I'm, I don't want to lump you in with, with crack addicts, but I'm venting because... Vent, baby. Like, uh, you're not... Like, here's the thing. Lump me up with it because very well, I could be addicted to video games, right? Like, I have to make a conscious choice to stop. I have to decide. Like, I have to use mental power... Like, my brother is in the addiction space. He is an addict, right? He just celebrated his 31st anniversary of sobriety. Like, I literally have an addiction expert. Well, hold on. We were going to get back. No, I think, but I think, this is I think this is important, right? Like, okay. right? If you, like, if you, if you don't want to go down that path, right? But it's, to me, it's important to talk about for the whole thing of why to get rid of it. Uh -huh. And you're seeing addictive qualities of someone who is obsessive, right? I purposely remove myself from human relationships to pursue a goal that seems so far off in the distance of most people thinking that I was willing to sleep on couches, find change in couch cushions, eat shitty food, uh, not talk to people, feel emotionally isolated to go win an Olympic medal. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you take the Olympic medal out of that, it sounds like addiction. It is. And in fact, I did it into the point where my body no longer could sustain it because I didn't, I, even though I knew it was time to give it up, I didn't right. To the point where I was like getting hiatal hernia in my stomach. So I would throw up every practice because of the stress to win a gold medal. Right. So like I am a fucking addict. I'm an addict of achievement and obsession and proving people wrong and all that stuff. And so video games is a nice little condensed, like for not a ton of collateral damage to that anymore. I can be a hero for a day, for an hour, you know, and achieve something. So, but what happens is like when I, when I started to say that video games were a place to relax, but then I put that same effort into being the best athlete in the world into getting the, you know, finding all the hidden loot in say a game like Diablo. And then like finishing the night and be like, oh, God, I should have played for one more hour because if I did that, I would have gotten the best weapon for the best game to be a better performer. Right. It hijacks my achievement cycle. And so but then there's a game like God of War, which is a great story. And I just loved playing it for the story. It was immersive. It didn't feel like a job. You, I can go to Crack Row and hear how great Crack is. Right. I want to hear about you committing to uh, what happened of your commitment to uh meditate as a way to access something that you wanted more of something that you wanted to, that you've been meaning to but haven't so did it felt like work felt laborious wasn't good because i had all this clutter in my head so what i did is i removed the clutter i sold my playstation i sold my motorcycle which were both just financial liabilities uh -huh. and i immediately have been free for the past three weeks without those in my back of my mind gnawing at me is like all right, do I have enough money for a motorcycle? When am I going to ride it? When am I going to do it? With time with the kids? When's my wife there? Like, when am I going to play video games? When am I going to, like... And were you planning on getting rid of them anyway? Or did that was that a direct result of going out and meditating and your mind being... I, I'm guessing that you went out, sat, and you're just like, I want to play video games. I want to play video games. I want to play video games. You're like, wait, that, that's not what I'm out here for. And no, I was out there trying to meditate because I was like, well, I told Josh I would do this and I know I should, but there's all this other stuff that I need to be doing. Right. And I needed a clear space in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I, so what the meditation did, it let me highlight things that I have already been thinking about. Right. Maybe I talking to my wife, maybe I should say the, sell the PlayStation, right. Maybe I should sell the bike. And instead it gave me the conviction to say, 
if I get rid of these things, I'm not going to lose anything. I'm going to gain something. I'm going to gain mental and emotional space for something else. Well, that sounds to me, I mean, other, I've had other guests on the podcast who haven't done their commitment and they come back and they say something they did and they're trying, you can, I can tell sometimes when they're trying to paint, put lipstick on a pig, like they didn't really do it. And they're trying to say that they did. And maybe it's not as much on the podcast, but also in, in life, I do the Spodic Method with a lot of people. You could do that, but you're not. You could have framed this as saying, yes, I started working on meditation. I found that in order to do it, I was, there were other things that were actually in the same vein. And I did those things because it, it feels like getting rid of the PlayStation motorcycle were things that maybe you hadn't thought consciously for a while, but that you want to do, that that is a result of them being the opposite of what your time out in nature would be, or in your case now, probably more time with the kids. But I mean, going back to earlier, before you had kids. Yeah, but the, I mean, rea reality to me is like the nature of the environment is my motivation for the kids. Like Carrie and I chose to create them, right? The one thing that you have no autonomy over is becoming alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. You really don't. Like as soon as you're one years old, you start saying no, right? Like whether people listen to you is a whole different subject, but like you become autonomous for your decisions right around the time of one. And so what the only thing you don't have any choice of is being created. And so for me, the same way I think my mother and father felt for me as a child is like, all right, it's our, it's our job to create an environment for this person to be ready to inherit this environment. And in most cases, you want it to be better and easier. Um, you know, my son Arshay at, at this talk we had at this event we went to, he's like, his coach said, you know, we leave things better than the way we found it. And what he added to that was, so it's easier for them. And I think we get stuck into the, like the gilded throne mentalities. Like if you have more resources and more of all these things and more TVs and bigger houses, like you have more, so it should be easier. And it's just disconnecting from the fact that it's like, we need more symbiosis in our systems so the systems perpetuate their own growth not the individual's work and so like my job as a father and a steward of this earth is to leave it better for the generation after me and so like my motivation is my kids to be able to one learn how important the environment is which is means spending time out there with them and showing how i'm managing our woodlands to make a positive improvement by helping this ecosystem we live in be a better system, not just like, we're now just going to grow corn and sell it and make money. Like, no, like I want, I am very intrigued about making an existing ecosystem better, both outside of my house and inside of it. And like the meditation part was, this is gnawing at me, right? How to do this. I know that being bored allows to be a creativity to solve problems meditation seems like a quick fix for that. So like the traditional, like sitting there with my legs crossed, trying to deep breathe did help, but it would have led me to was like, from, from my mindset, I need a lead to action. There's too much clutter in my brain to be able to enjoy this process. It feels like work. It feels no different than playing the video game. That feels like, feels like work to get to the sword that will kill the boss. So it's like, let me, I, I actively meditated, I guess. I said, fuck it. If I feel like this is an issue, does getting rid of the PlayStation hurt anything? 
No, just my ego. Is getting rid of the bike selling anything? No, just my ego. So like, let's get rid of them and see what it feels like. Because worst case scenario, I have sunk costs and I buy a new one. But since I've made those two decisions, I feel freer. The tone of your voice sounds like you didn't do a, do it, but what you're describing sounds like you did. I'm trying to reconcile the tone. I, some people would say, man, I didn't get to meditate quite yet, but man, I got rid of these two sacks of uh, uh, you know, dead weights on my, these, um, what's that, albatrosses <laughs> that I, I freed myself. Like that's, I, I'm, that's what I would have been, that's how I would be saying what you're saying, but your tone is different. I'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine being married to me because I'm excited. I feel good, like, but I'm driven, right? Like, so now I'm like, let's fucking go. Let's go deeper. Let's high perform. How can we make this better? How can we improve? Like, what's next? How can I get through this permaculture book faster? How can I? One of the things that's really cool about being able to go as fast as my team did and as like, and I did, like, to be able to have that physicality to do something that most people can't is like you feel like you're riding a cosmic wave. And when you're in that flow, right, when you're doing something that in some ways has never been done before, it's its own type of intoxication because as you feel part of everything. It's a psych like, I mean, I've done psychedelics. You know, I've talked about this, I think. I think I talked about it in your class. Like you feel in flow. You feel connected to everything. And so when you, so for me, my drive is, I just want to be connected to it. Like if it's like, it's like when I read, like just last night, there was a, uh, you know, a poplar tree that had been covered in invasive vines and it was dead and it fell over and was a hazard. And um, I finally had the time to take care of it. Right. But look at it. Where was it going to fall? How is it going to fall? What do I do with the stuff? Okay. I talked to the forest. So that's the other thing. I had the state forester come to like made time for them to teach me their expertise of what I should do with this property. What's the plan? And I fell the tree where it should be laid it out because I want to put it in a fruit orchard there because it's a good place for a fruit orchard. And as soon as I looked at the work that I did, it looked better. And it was almost like the foot, the forest was like, thank you. You know, and it's like, I want more of that, right? My actions feel like they're leading to something better. And it's the same thing as sports is like, holy shit, I just did all this work and now I'm faster. And because I'm faster, I'm closer to being with the fastest people. And when we get to the fastest people, oh my God, imagine how amazing this is going to be. And that's how I feel like with this, this, the idea of sustainability is for me is I got to take what I know works for me and I can't take on any more work right now. Like I can't because then I start taking away from me, my wife, my kids, my job, my friends. But what I can do is start becoming more efficient. And I looked at the things around my house that I do not need, right? What do I need? And video games and motorcycle were no longer needs. So I'm a little distracted because I'm, I'm, you, you brought me back to the class when psychedelics came up and I'm, I'm, I'm the professor in front of a bunch of undergrads. I'm like, I don't think I'm risking my job if I were to talk about this, but I probably shouldn't. Anyway, so, <laughs> so there's that moment. Well, I was talking about yeah. it. I was a speaker. So you could just be like, sorry, I didn't know he's crazy. Yeah. Well, also I was, I, I was like, can I talk about this or not? And so I think I opted not to, but I don't remember. Anyway, that's what I, that's what I was, I was a little distracted, but 
Um, all right. So you're talking about efficiency when you were getting rid of the motorcycle and getting rid of the, um, actually the whole cycle from when the commitment happened to, it sounds like you did actually sit for a bit before, after we spoke and before, uh, getting rid of the PlayStation motorcycle. And then you made a decision to get rid of them. And then you went through the motions and, and actually got rid of them. What was that emotional journey like? Can you name the emotions that went through at different stages? Yeah. So like, uh, so I set myself a realistic timeline. So I, you know, you and I had to talk and I, again, meditation in its traditional form is difficult for me because it's not necessarily enjoyable. I know I should do it, but I putting too much structure on it. Um, and so I started off with that first one and I just like, as you're supposed to, when you meditate, like thoughts are rushing in and you're supposed to let them go. And I just couldn't let them go because I had all this nagging stuff on it. And so like when I started to think about, okay, I'm doing this in place of video games, but the but was I had bought this machine for a specific game, God of War Ragnarok, because it's a super compelling story to me. And the same way as like Empire Strikes Back is a super compelling story and I'll watch it a million times and there's nothing negative I feel. There's no dirty feeling I have after playing that game. Whereas like when I just play games to play games and it's like, well, what am I going to play? I guess I'll try this one. It's not that fun, but I have to beat it because I'm a completionist and, you know, like, oh, but I invested in it. And so what happened through the thinking is I'm getting obsessed over sunk costs. Well, I already have this investment, so I need to keep going into this investment despite the fact that it's not providing anything other than more sunk cost. So I took it from that standpoint of, okay. Like that's similar to what I'm learning in forestry, which is like, just because a tree is growing doesn't mean that tree is good for the forest. Like, is it, is it an invasive tree? Is it a, um, you know, is it blocking out the sunlight for, you know, is it reached determinants it's blocking out the sunlight of any seedlings or like, you know, just because it exists doesn't mean that it's not a sunk cost. And in fact, if you cut that tree down, if you remove that one tree from the forest, it will allow more life to grow. And so like, again, like the, my whole, thinking has been shifting a lot lately and it's because of where I am as a parent, where I am as a person and taking this forestry class and, you know, wanting to be a steward of the planet. And so I was like, all right, well, guess what? You bought it for this game. You have this game, beat the game and see how you feel. Right. So I try to be pragmatic about it. Like I don't have to get rid of the PlayStation right now. So let me make sure that this is the distraction. Let me, let me make sure that the, what I'm saying to Josh isn't just sounds good for a podcast. So I played the game and beat it. And I was like, man, that was awesome. I enjoyed every second of it. Didn't feel anything negative that it was doing to my life. So the next night I went to go play a different game and it just felt gray. Like it was not new. And I was like, you know what? This experience is done. And I said, there's value in the PlayStation so I can sell it. Maybe not for what I put into it, but who cares? It's still more value, right? Monetarily. And I'll get time back. And worst case scenario, like that little, mis if it was a mistake, well, then I buy another one, right? So it's like it, I had to analyze like into the greater picture of this, like this the being, I get so far down the path of where the end goal is that I will take, not even take my own advice and make big goals small. Like, so like with you is like, yeah, I'm like you, man, I want to make, I want to save the planet. Like I want to save the world. 
And people look at me and are like, oh, you're crazy. I was like, why am I crazy? Like, why am I crazy? It's an, so the PlayStation, I just had to experiment slowly. Like, make us, like, what's the worst that can happen by keeping it or getting rid of it? So let's try the getting rid of it. And that felt good. And then what that led me to was like, okay, I feel like there's a relief. So what else is around me right now that could be a relief? And it just so happened that the motorcycle was in for maintenance. So it was presently absent from my garage, which meant I could make a logical decision on an emotional decision without seeing it, right? I didn't have to visualize it being out of the shop. It was already out of my garage. And so it was like, all right, let's go through this. What's the worst that can happen? So I called the place where the bike was at. I was like, hey, what would you sell me the bike for? And they gave me a price. I talked to my wife about it. It's like, she's like, are you sure you love that bike? And I was like, it's a motorcycle. What's the worst that can happen is I regret the decision and I buy a new motorcycle. Like I have that luxury. Like it may not be the same one. It may not be this year, but it's not a permanent enough, you know, and it's also like I wasn't riding it every day. It wasn't like it wasn't it was more of a it was just a thing. And so went to the place, sold the bike, drove away. And I was like, how are you doing? I was like, I feel relief. Like, of course I miss it. And of course there's emotional value in it. Of course there's attachment to it because I always wanted a motorcycle, right? But I did it. It's like it very similar ways for me. It's like, I always wanted to be an Olympian. Well, I did it. So now what? Like, and that's the thing that I've, where I'm at is it's nice to get rid of some things even though they mean something to you to create space for new things. And that's where I'm trying to be is like, just because a certain way of life has worked for us up until now, doesn't mean a new way of life won't welcome new things. And in most cases, if you made a mistake, you can go back to an old way. Like you can always go back. Right. And it's like, I think talking to the addiction space is like, it's a messed up thing about addiction is you can always go back to it. It's there. It's there waiting for you. So it's like, for me, it's creating this new space for new things to come in. And like by freeing myself from those two things, I'm less stressed. It created more financial stability in the house because there were two liabilities that that created you know income that we weren't expecting. Those allowed for new opportunities right away. And it's like, I feel more at peace. And I have friends who are like, dude, you're crazy. Why did you do that? And I was like, I don't know, man, I feel better. And it was the same thing as like social media. When I was coaching adolescence, you know, 10 years ago, no, it wasn't 10 years ago. And when I was like, shit, it's only five years ago that I was still doing it. Five years ago, I could see the detriment that social media was doing to the parent-child relationship, right? Like, because what the parents were doing is like, don't be on your phone too much. And the parent is on the phone. It's like the hypocrisy. Yeah. But also it's the fact of like, Kids are trying to figure out how to be kids through this app as parents are trying to figure out how to be parents through this app. And it's like, yo, your parent-child relationship is unique. So focus on that relationship. And I bet you you'll solve some more problems. Like the old <laughs> fucking 90s thing. Where'd you learn to smoke pot? I learned it from watching you, dad. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if – so I saw that, right? I saw the conflict and I was the mediator between that conflict and so I was like, I'm done with this. I'm not using it. I'm not posting shit. Like, it's stupid. And all on top of which, I found myself posting something, telling a joke on a friend's page, and then waiting to see what the response was. Because I have a large ego. 
And it's like, fuck this. I don't need it. And um, then, you know, all the data comes out. And it's like, yeah, sometimes by removing shit, you create more space. And I'm just trying to practice that in things that I really wanted um, in some ways being poor kids to show, hey, I made it. I can buy nice things. See, you know, because like that's part of it is like, but yet even having the motorcycle or the PlayStation didn't remove me feeling like this poor kid on the couch. And it's like this whole evolution where I was getting resentful for not winning the Olympics. And I'm, it's allowed me to come back to the space where I was like, fuck winning the Olympics. I'm alive. Rowing saved my life. And I'm here. It gave me time on this planet. And I'm done wasting it on shit that doesn't matter. So, yeah, that's, so, the, that's the emotional journey I've been on. <laughs> well, all right. So you knew that as, um, from Olympic times. And probably I want to ask. Well, all right. You said that it, when you sold the PlayStation, the PlayStation, whatever the video game thing was, when, when you sold it, you felt good and relief. What about before that? Did you feel what? I mean, there's a lot of d- description before that, but you didn't name any emotions before doing it. Did, were you nervous or were you enthusiastic or? Um, yeah, well, I didn't because I, I I still enjoy playing games like the same way I enjoy going to movies. But what I what I was realizing is that the majority of it was based off of nostalgia that doesn't exist anymore. So what was the, some of the emotions you, you felt there? Contemplative or reflective or? Mostly I was, mostly it was like, it was contemplating like, why am I doing this? Like, like it was trying to find the root cause of why I felt so attached to, to the PlayStation, right? Why I felt so attached to basically the regurgitation of the hero's journey in a different skin. Mm-hmm. Like it was got to the point where it's like, I know that how this is going to end. Like, it's going to, I'm going to level up, I'm going to defeat the boss, and then I'm just going to want to redo that story again and again. And it's kind of like, you know what? I want to be the hero of my own story. Fuck this thing. <laughs> like that. So it sounds like it was an epiphany. It was plus re, um, it's getting rid of epiphany. Yeah, but it was also getting rid of the whoopee, like in Mr. Mom. Like the video games were a security blanket for me. Like as a small child, <laughs> that my parents were afraid to let me out in the world because I was, you know, because of the chaos that was happening with my siblings and cousins. I sat at home and played video games, right? So they were, video games were were almost encouraged for me to play because it kept me entertained and safe and I enjoyed them, like being Super Mario. Who was doing the encouragement? Your parents? Yeah, well, because they they purchased it for me. Because if I was... So from their perspective, it's pacifying you, I would think. Yeah, but it's all, it wasn't so much pacifying me. It was also like I was home. They had their eyes on me. Uh, uh, securing you. Yeah, it was securing. It was like a playpen. Because like, like, when their other children, especially the males in my family, went out into the world, they came back damaged. When I talk about stories of people have walked through the Spodic Method, I like to share stories of how things have gone. And sometimes I share that things didn't go well because I'm, I'm not trying to make a Disney thing here. This is not like, <laughs> Oh, just do this one thing and you're done. It's like, do this, make this one mindset shift. And now the journey begins. Like it's hard in your case, except for your tone, which I think you're saying, well, that's just your, your tone. I feel like I could describe this and tell me if I'm mis- mischaracterizing it. Then I could say, I had this Olympic athlete on, he talked about 
what the environment meant to him. And he committed to meditating outdoors. And now he tried to do it, but he ended up actually selling his PlayStation and selling his motorcycle as a way of achieving it. Like when you were doing those things, was it, was that the, the, not the logical, but the, was that the, not culmination, but was that the natural outcome of the commitment? Yeah. I mean, it was part of it was like create more space, right? The idea, the commitment to you was like meditation should create more mental and emotional space for greater things. And what it did is it made me realize like, well, in order to do that, I actually have to remove some of the physical stuff in my life too. So this feels like, a, I mean, to me, to me, this feels like one of the bigger achievements, one of the larger outcomes. I had one other guy who also came with poverty and hit one of his big things was he, when he succeeded, he bought himself uh, the Jaguar that James Bond drove in one of the movies. It was an infamous switch from the Aston Martin. <laughs> so you're on top of these things. And so if some Jag and he committed to driving it no more than I forget some number of miles in some time or kilometers because he's Canadian. When I spoke to him the next time, he said, yeah, he didn't drive it in that time. Or no, no, he got to really close to, yes, he drove it and got close to the limit and had somewhere to go at some point and didn't, and knew that if he drove a little bit, he'd drive farther than he meant to and it put him over the limit. So I ended up not driving and then that led to um, by the end of our second conversation, the one that you and I are having now, like, like the one that you and I are having now, he said, I'm thinking about selling the Jag. And part of it was that a lot of the value of the Jag wasn't, you know, it's kind of well-engineered, I guess. I think he said things like that. But the, the thing was that it was to show that he had arrived and he didn't need the car to show that he'd arrived. That wasn't like when he was a kid, he used to look at cars and say, that's what I want. Not that, not that, not that, that. And then the Jag became the right thing for him. But that wasn't what he was successful. That wasn't a mark of his success. That was just, it was a mark of not success. It was a mark of something, but not what, it wasn't meaningful to him. So I got him on a third time and he hadn't yet sold it, but he hadn't driven it. And like six months later, it was still, it had not moved from its spot in his garage some guy had come over and they were talking about the car and the guy was said, oh, can, I, can we go for a ride? And he's like, well, I'm not driving it because I don't want to. And the guy, and they're like, well, can I at least like check it out? And he couldn't open the car door because it's an electronic lock and the battery had drained completely. And that's a story I've told many times. Actually, it's been a while since I've told it, so it's not fresh in my mind. But yours sounds like that. You got rid of a vehicle. That's pretty high up there. I mean, it, for him, he and his wife had another car. In your case, it doesn't sound like the. It doesn't sound like that was a primary vehicle for you. It was like a fun vehicle. Yeah, no. It was I mean, it was a. In some ways, like the motorcycle, for all I still love them, and I'll get them again. And I just don't think I'll get like a super, like the bike I got was like an adventure bike with the idea that I'm going to ride it with my brother and we're going to get ready to go do like the Pacific Coast Trail from Alaska to Chile one day, mm-hmm. and. It's a, you know, I'm a firm believer, like, if you really want to do something, for the most part, you can get it done. Because, like, I'm a (laughs) one-off. You know, it's like, I'm a born and raised kid from Norwalk, Connecticut, which is a relatively big city. And I'm an Olympic medalist, and I'm the only one, you know? And it's like, 
it's an interest like so when you do that type of stuff like i'm the fir- you know i the first male to graduate college from it like when you do these things that like other people hadn't done that like your your limitation of like what can be done is not nearly as stunted i feel like as other people and so it's like when my brother and i are like yeah we're gonna do that we still think we're gonna do it but it's like well we're probably gonna have to wait till like my kids are older and like because there's and there's you know your kids aren't in college yet and you're building and you're you know growing your entrepreneurship and i still have to be able to buy a house and so i think that the tough thing is when you're a dream achiever you sometimes have to be pulled back into the reality. And the motorcycle for me was like, I always wanted one, but I made the conscious decision not to get one when I was training because it was a risk. It was a liability. Like if I fell off of it or got hit, dream's over. And, um, you know, part of the emotional thing of getting rid of it wasn't just, you know, a couple of things like fell into place. Like I asked the question of what the shop would buy it for. And it turned out like more than I had, you know, like, uh, like I was doing long story short is like you could lease a bike from BMW and then either trade it in for a new one or do the balloon payment. And it turned out I had private, like positive equity on the lien. The bike was worth more than I owed. So it was, became a positive asset and it just made sense. Like it made practical sense for an emotional decision, which is even best, right? Like when you were practical, when the, but I had to remove the emotional block of like, I deserve the bike. It was a thing that I got for my 40th birthday and it's my first motorcycle and like the, all the shit, like the personification of a thing <laughs> that was getting in the way of me just having a fun experiment. Right. And then like when I got to the practical variables of the experiment, which are, okay, what's the bike worth? What's the loan? What's this? And it turned out like, Oh, these variables are leading to a successful response. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, that's the part where the meditation for me process is enough of uh, or just the thinking right like i did a lot of contemplating about what you and i talked about and i need to readjust what i think is meditating like i spent time sitting in my garage listening to music at night you know whittling a piece of wood that calls to me thinking about what i wanted to do like that's a meditation right and that's like so the part of the reason why it's like i'm talking to you in this tone is that I, this is how, this is my creative tone. Like I didn't do what Josh said, but I got a result. And in some ways, maybe a greater result because I used the process that works for me. And that's half of my battle with like coaching is that everybody wants to regurgitate a training program and emulate versus make it their own. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it feels like what you've done is exactly what the Spodic method is about. That, that it's it led you to a feeling of doing something for your reasons that you've wanted to do that's getting rid of stuff that i mean to me is is polluting stuff um it, it, but but in your heart and mind as i see it was distracting you from well the absence of it liberated you getting rid of it liberated you gave you freedom and that's the outcome that's that for me is one of my greatest outcomes of Every step I take more towards sustainability, I mean, the three words I usually say are joy, fun, and freedom. And sometimes I'll switch the orders of, of, of those. And I mean, also there's um, community connection, family, meaning, purpose. There's a whole bunch that I, they just rattle off the tongue. So when you say it brought you freedom, I feel like that's what it was for, is for you to act. Not Had I said to you, there's no way I would have known, but if I had said, last time, hey, why don't you get rid of your PlayStation motorcycle without any context? That would be seeking compliance. 
and maybe if you did that, you might get rid of them, but you'd probably, it would it have been as liberating. Not sure. Cause like, that's, I think you'll go like, this kind of ties into the coaching and like the way I coach is I present information based off of my perspective and because I've perceived more things in rowing than most is then to try and allow the athlete to come to their conclusion of whether or not they think it's better for their performance. Right? Like, yes, I will say we should do this workout because I think it will get us faster. And as your leader, like this is why, but ultimately it's your decision to execute the workout. And, and it's like, so for me, it's like, in some ways you I was being compliant because you said, Hey, I believe in this philosophy. And if you do this, right, I anticipate that based off of my experience as a coach in sustainability, if you do these things, you should have a benefit at the end of it. You know, the risk in the experiment is like, is it a great enough, is it a great enough positive experience to want this person to seek out the next one? So like, are the workouts I'm creating enough to make the athlete feel like they're improving? So therefore they build trust in me that I'm helping them improve. It has nothing to do with fucking me, man. Like, I don't care if you win or lose, right? Like, that's not true. I, I want you to win because winning's a cheap emotion. It feels good. Winning feels better than losing. There's a lot to be learned from losing though, right? So it's like, to me as a coach, it's, it's like, the athlete has to have all the buy-in that the process is for them. And I am just a mentor through that, through both the win and the loss. But ultimately, whether you win or lose, there's always room for improvement the next day. Now, you did come to, I presume you're, the people you coach come to you. You don't find them. Like, you're not advertising. Um, I mean, I used to, I mean, I coached for teams, right? It's like I was hired to be a coach for rowing teams. Oh, so some of the, some of the, so the individual athletes may not want coaching, but nonetheless, you have to coach them. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I'm a national champion coach too. Like, so I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> like I've helped kids become the best in the country. So, um, but it's like, I'm looking into getting into this corporate coaching space because one, it's lucrative, which is nice. But I also think there's a, there's an issue with people who confuse leadership and teamwork for things that they are not because they don't have experience with it. And it's like leadership and teamwork is all about creating an ecosystem where a leader generally isn't necessarily good at a lot of things, but they're good at seeing how the puzzle fits together. And a good leader actually helps people figure out how to be really good at what they do and removes, you know, like rowing is a really unique sport from a coaching perspective because it's the only, it's one of the few sports where you're nowhere near the field of play. You have no interaction with the field of play during the actual event. Mm -hmm. There's no timeouts. There's no subs. There's no trick plays. Like you give a talk, you go through what you think the race should be. And then you launch the athletes onto the water and they go two miles away from you. And then you don't see them until they come two miles back. And there's a result. So in order to be a really good rowing coach, you have to just drive so much autonomy and self-trust in the athlete. So in, in our case, you didn't come to me for, I mean, there was nothing about you that said, let's go to Josh for coaching and sustainability. So I had to, I, mean, I, I imposed on you. This is something I do on the podcast. Did it connect with something inside you? Did, did the interaction lead to results in you of what you talked about winning the feeling that they get that they want to get to the next level or do it again? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's funny. You invited me to have a conversation to push my thinking about a topic I'm interested in and see if I can be better. And what you did is you challenged my own paradigm of like, it can always be better. And so if I was going to ignore you and say, nah, I'm good, right? Like, but you are a leadership coach. You are a teamwork coach. You are an executive coach. And it's like, I am humble to be able to have these conversations with you because it's something that I want to learn more about. Cause I'm not, if I was good enough at it, I would already be doing it. Like I did a couple corporate team building things on my own. It was really funny. Like I had a parent say, Hey, you're a pretty good speaker. Do you do corporate team building shit? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> like fake it till you make it. But it's like, you're one of the first people I've met that, you know, I think when you and I were having like, and the other thing is like, you and I have a good push and pull. Like we don't just, we listen to each other, but we don't agree on everything right away. And I like that. Like I hate echo chambers. I fucking hate echo chambers. And, um, you know, I just, we both talked about, I was like, man, it's just like, I could have a different career. I just don't want to sell a Gildan throne. You're like, yeah, tell me about it, man. Like, and you just started listing your accolades, not to brag, but to create empathy with me. It's like, yo, I know how you feel, right? Like, I know how you feel like I have a message and it should be done better. It should be done about the person and the person needs to be motivated to make positive change. And that's a really, really, really hard way to coach because winning is such a cheap emotion. And people manipulate that so bad. And loss aversion is such a strong emotion. And people manipulate that. And to me, I was intrigued to talk to another person that knows they're special, know they have a mission. But truthfully, like, I'm intrigued about how you're trying to do this. Because there's, there's truthfully not enough of us. Right? Like... You know, there's nobody, there's nobody like you and I have a discussion with each other from a computer screen. It's not like we have enough people like, you know what? I don't need the eighth house in Martha's Vineyard. Like they're still doing it. They're like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And I think I'm going to apply that. But it's like, there's not enough people that I wanted to be extreme. Like I wanted to be like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm not going to fucking take baby steps. I'm beyond baby steps. Like, let me fucking cut some ties with some shit that I know is not needed they're complete luxuries, right? Because I wasn't an unhappy kid. The poverty thing didn't hit me until someone else told me I was poor. <laughs> Everyone, when I talk to leadership coaches about sustainability, overwhelmingly, okay, I say overwhelmingly as if there's a huge number to choose from. But most of the ones that I speak to, and there's a small number here, they want to find people who are doing sustainability and leadership coach them. So they're like, you are doing something that's valuable. That's their, and, and I'm going to help you do it. Now, most people, I mean, as a podcaster in this space, I get every day a whole bunch of, of messages from PR people saying, here's someone doing something in sustainability. Why don't you have them on your, on your podcast? And it's everything, virtually everything I've seen is what I call stepping on the gas, thinking it's the break, wanting congratulations. They're pushing something that sounds great, but systemically, you know, if, if you make a polluting system more efficient, you pollute more efficiently. If you're going in this direction and you get more efficient at it, you're going to go that direction more, not less. So there's all these people who don't get the effects. So if you leadership coach them, you're going to help them be faster. It's, but there's not many people, if anyone, who's trying to um, 
really get down to what the system change the system. And so what this leads to is that a lot of people want to help, like people who consider sustainability leadership coaching, they think, I don't see demand for it, they say. I don't see people saying, I want, like CEOs saying, I want to change like this. And what we have to do is we have to show how it will help their bottom line or how it will help their um, morale at their company, like their DEI program or some other program that they're doing. But that's going to help the company do what the company's already doing. If the company's unsustainable or if the company's lowering Earth's ability to sustain life, helping them is generally going to lower it faster. And what I want to do is I want to help. I know that there's a couple of leaders out there. Let's say in, it could be political, it could be business, it could be nonprofit, lots of spaces where people do you know, community groups. But let's take corporate leaders. I know out there, there are some who are, before they are a CEO or board member, C-suite member, whatever, they're a human being and they recognize that something's off. We're lowering Earth's ability to stay in life. And they're not going to, their goal, Oscar Schindler was this. What he did was not good for the company. It did not help the bottom line. And he did it. The other big example I think of is um, Robert Carter III, who in 1791 was started freeing his slaves. I think he was in Virginia. That's not good for business. His neighbors didn't like it. They were mad at him. And looking back, we wish more people had done what he did. But everyone today would just, they'd, they'd come up with a cotton gin, which was supposed to lower labor, but it increased slavery. It's not, that's a bit extreme, but well, I don't know. And so the, the challenge is, I believe that there are people out there that I can find who are big-time leaders and want to do what's right, what they believe is right, not just the company, but what led them to become CEO, what led them to become someone that people defer judgment to and want to follow, that people look up to, that made them the leader, to use that beyond just the company. Because that's what Oscar Schindler, we watched that movie not because he made the quarterly report, the quarterly numbers. I don't know if he did or not. I haven't watched it. I can, I, I have a tough time staring too much into the face of human atrocity. Like Muhammad Ali, when he was drafted to fight in Vietnam. Yep. Jackie Robinson said, just do it. But you know, here's Cassius Clay switching over around that time. Yeah. And he felt, no, look at what's going on here. I, the easy choice for him since he was not going to be put on the front lines. I mean, no one is going to put Muhammad Ali on the front line. Not that there were lines there, but you know, he, he wasn't, his life wasn't going to put at risk. He was going to be, you know, go around to promote war bonds or something like that. Yeah. The hard choice for him in the sense of financially risky or the one that is the equivalent of the, the thing that would be making the quarterly numbers in, in the business world today would be to be drafted, join the army. And this is, you know, this is Vietnam. It's not like looking back, we could say, he could say, look at what the US did in Vietnam. If he went back, he'd say, well, this was the army that beat Hitler. Yeah. So what was, but what was actually easier for him if he looked inside at his conscience 
was not to be drafted and he didn't get drafted and they took away, they convicted him and they took away his passport and they took away his driver's license, um, his boxing license. And at the height of his physical prime, he couldn't box. And for several years, he almost went bankrupt until the Supreme Court overturned in an eight, nothing ruling with one abstention, they overturned the conviction. So the easy thing for him in the making the quarterly numbers sense would be to be drafted. But the easy thing for him looking at his conscience was to do what he felt was right and not go and, um, you know, no Viet Cong ever called me an N-word. He didn't say N-word. He said the word. And I know that there's people out there who want to, who can do in our time what he did in his time, what they all did in their times. It's like Dave Chappelle when he talks about stepping down from Comedy Central and just he couldn't deal with the monster that was Hollywood. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm thinking, would he make a... Yeah, he, yes. In fact, an early version of my book was Draw Your Line because he was on Inside the Actor's Studio and he talked about that. And he said, when he was a kid, do you know the story? His, his father has told him, if you're going to, you know, if you want to make it, you know, to be, he told his father, I'm going to become a stand-up comedian, not a path to financial, of, of like solid financial success. Yeah. Uh, it could work out. And he said, well, if you're going to go into that business, things can get pretty um, like enticing. I said, before you get in, name your price, know your price, and draw your line. And if it ever gets past it, you got to know when to walk away. And because his father gave him that guidance, he did. Yeah, that's, I think that's the tough. the toughest part is just trying to discern the team what is what is comfort and what is comfort, a luxurious comfort and what is a obnoxious, luxurious comfort. Like Rocky when Rocky five, was it the, the one where he was like, starts off and he's the, the little robot thing. And he's oh, way he, past. Yeah. When he gets bankrupt, uh, he starts off really rich. Yeah. I think it's Rocky Five is when it falls apart. It's it the thing with the robot thing, and you're like, okay, he's, but yeah, it's, it's not like, better your life, rich. But it's you know, it's. I think that's the. I think the difficult part is, you could. Yeah, I mean it's it's an existential problem, right? And it's a paradigm shift, and those things are are all really. It's like until you, it's like it's similar to what I'm trying to look at at rowing, right? Like it's it's really difficult for me to look at it now with rowing and realize that why are there not more, you can see the reason why. There's not more people of color. There's not more people in people who come from poor communities. There's not more brown people in it because it's like, well, where's the top go in the U.S.? Well, the top of rowing is still basically like Ivy League institutions and, you know, some other you know, like some big state schools like Washington County. I'm talking mostly like on the men's side. But if you look at rowers, right, they're all normally like affluent white men. And it's like with all that power from those institutions where all those resources are, it's almost like is it a conscious choice that it's not more accessible? And it's like when you have to look at it and you have – because if you're going to solve a problem, you have to look at all the variables of why something is a problem. And it's like, I hope it's not that, but can we disprove it? 
And it's like, we can't right now. We can't disprove that, you know, there's a part of that institution that's protecting it. It wants it to stay that way. Right. It, we want our education in America to cost $70,000 a year for, for a brand name. Like chemistry is chemistry, no matter what classroom you learn it in. <laughs> but yet certain classrooms cost $80,000 a year for chemistry and other ones are not. And it's like, are you paying to learn about chemistry or are you paying to le- have a brand that says you know more about chemistry? And that's the part that I that is tough for me with the sustainability movement, which is why it's like everyone knows it's a good idea for the most part. But it's like uh, when I brought the Olympics to Boston or trying to bring the Olympics to Boston, it's like, oh, that's awesome. You want to bring sports to Boston, but not in my backyard. You know, like that's that's a hard thing to fight. Everyone wants to look like Arnold. No one wants, want, lift no weights. One wants to lift weights. Yeah. Ronnie Coleman, baby. <laughs> Is that who said it? Yeah. Okay. Everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift heavy weights. Yeah. You know, and that, but that's a reality. And I think the difficult thing is that the expert gap, I think we can kind of get full, we can almost get it all in, Josh. (laughs) The expert gap is we that have humble narcissism, okay, where you know you're special. And it's like at a certain point, like you've written books, you have your degrees, you teach a class, you have a podcast, you are so much more capable than many people. And you're doing the work to try and make that. I can physically do things that a lot of people can't. Um, I might have emotional intelligence that I'm learning as I get older that other people don't. And the reality is, yes, it's hard work for us. But in some ways, it's easy for us to do hard work. Like there's a reward mechanism for us. And we just assume that other people have that same drive. Yeah, I think there's way more of it than people think. I want to be sensitive to your time. Yeah. Because I think we're over. Right. But it, it, that's, but to me, that's the part where it's like, that's actually more of the challenge we have is like financial gain is actually the easiest thing to become an expert in. And there's so much gray area in how to get financial wealth. And it's so rewarded to be seen as your successful human if you make money. But that's, so much harder than like being really fast or really strong, really empathetic or really charitable or really, really all these other things that are good for humanity, right? Like resources are good for humanity. If it, if they're, if that tool is used correctly, you know, and it's the same thing. I think we're so like separated as a culture is like not everybody wants to be a rich finance bro in New York city. Like some people really just want to be able to homestead in the middle of nowhere and like, you know, watch NASCAR at the end of the night and that would be happy for them. They just don't want it to be so infinitely difficult to do that and it shouldn't. But it's like, here we are, is like saying like, well, you need to be focusing on, you know, it's just like we're so far apart in what being like acceptance that it's like, that's where I think it's difficult is like we're so much in the expert gap of how do you get someone who's not intelligent enough to understand these big issues to understand them and then feel good about them? Or how do you get someone who's so intelligent about these big issues to admit to, to get them to admit that they big, they big ignoring them and stepping over them and say, yeah, I've been a bad person. I, I'm sending you a draft of my book when it's ready. Because <laughs> I, I, I mean, those are the questions that I'm trying to answer. And they're not, I think it takes a book to answer them because of the emotional connection to what pollution brings. 
But how do we wrap this up? Do we go for third conversation? I think, sure. And I think, I mean, I like our talks and it's helping me, but I think, you know, we went to, we started off with pollution, right? My phone was dinging. I couldn't get the notifications to stop. You had noise pollution. We talked about light pollution. There's emotional pollution, right? There's brain space pollution, right? And so like in a lot of ways, if we want to stop polluting our environment, we have to unpollute ourselves, yeah, I had a podcast guest who wrote a book called Emotional Obesity, which sounds pretty similar. Yeah. And like that's where I'm trying to like that to me was my motivation of the exercise of like taking the Spodek method, right? Which is and just did it the wash way. <laughs> it's like dive this, head, dive head all in. Right, so this is where we're gonna start next time because um I wanna see where you that to me sounds like the start of something. Like you're thinking of how to use what I'm doing and I would love to pick up on what you're doing more. I haven't led any of any national championships and I wouldn't like, I haven't led some, I'm not leading people to, to where they're going to puke and I'm sure you have or close to it. But if, if that's attainable, then this, I, I believe it's attainable too, that people could have the equivalent of leading towards sustainability, that amount of effort. There's much, I, I believe that there are people out there who have it in them to put into sustainability what you put into rowing and reaching the Olympics. And I want to find them and I want to bring out in them what your coaches brought out in you, what you bring out in others. I know that they're there. I know that no one, it's not like 8 billion people, every single one of them just wants to see collapse happen or is like fine to just let it happen while they resign themselves to, I know that there's people who want to put everything they've got into it. Yeah. yeah. The easy thing about the Olympics or money or fame or movies is that the, the reward is tangible from the eyes or the ears. Yeah. And if, if, if we actually reach sustainability, no one will know that we, there's not like an alternative universe that we can look at and see, see, that's what we averted. Yeah. Everyone will say, oh, we, we would have been fine anyway. Highlighting small wins. So that's how you make a team that perpetually loses. And if you go into a team that's been a losing team and you need to teach it to win because winning is as much of a skill as fitness, strength, mental toughness. Winning is a learned skill. You start with giving them easy wins. Was selling the, the bike and the uh, PlayStation an easy win, uh, a small win? PlayStation was an easy win. The bike was a bigger win. All right. Like, all right, we're going to pick up here next time. All right, homie. It's good to talk. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Dan Walsh, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.